I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn them to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 13. For the past two weeks, we've been looking at Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. And as you might remember, if you're here for those sermons, Paul covers a lot of ground. And those verses at the end of Romans 12, in fact, there are 30 plus commands in just those verses. Paul talks about love, work, honor, suffering and hope, prayer and hospitality, peace and unity, pride and revenge, and much more. But unlike that last text, which covered all sorts of topics, maybe 15 to 20 different things, in our text today, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, Paul really only talks about one thing. And what is that one thing? Christians and government. And this is a great time to be talking about Christians and government. After two years of government being front and center in all of our lives uh, due to the pandemic and all these things, uh, elections, all kinds of stuff. So this is should be an interesting text for us to work through, something that we have maybe been thinking about uh, more in the last two years of life than maybe at any other other time. How are Christians supposed to think about and act toward our governing authorities? This text is Paul's most thorough answer to that question in all of his letters. So let's take a look at the text. We'll read the whole thing, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, that's our text for today about Christians in government. And as with so many things in these chapters... God wants to reshape how we think about this. God wants to change our minds so we are able to see our governing authorities the way that God sees them. So let's just note a couple things right away. First, did you catch, as I was reading that, how those verses unfold? Like Specifically, did you notice that in the first five verses, you have the basic teaching from Paul about government? And then in the last two verses, you have a specific application. Okay. 
Maybe you'd have to look back at the text to see it, but this text really breaks down easily. The first five verses of Romans 13 contains Paul's general teaching about government, and then he ends with two verses of specific application of that teaching. So it's, it's an easy text to follow like that. The second thing, just big picture, did you notice how positive Paul is about government in this text? In fact, there is nothing negative at all about government in this text. Why does Paul talk like that? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say this. It's not because Paul was naive about government. Paul knew his Bible, so he knew all kinds of bad stories about government. I mean, he knew the history of Israel, which was a history of mostly evil kings. <laughs> Paul also knew his own current government very well. He had lots of interaction with the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. Okay? And so Paul knows that governments can be very messed up and that there could be governments, in fact, that punish good and reward evil instead of the opposite. But his goal in this text is not to deal with the exceptions nor is his goal to answer every question we may have about government. This is not an exhaustive treatment. Seven verses on Christians and government. And Paul was, it wasn't what Paul was trying to write here or why he decided to talk about it, to try to like go into every possibility. But Paul's goal here is to push us to think in a certain way, in a uniquely Christian way, about our governing authorities. Now let's take a closer look at the details. So we'll go back to verse one. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is the main call in the, in the seven verses. Okay, it's the call to every Christian to submit to the governing authorities. This is what Christians should be known for. Okay, outside the church, you may or may not see this. But what should mark out every Christian community with respect to government is this. It should be that we willingly submit ourselves to our governing authorities. It's like the default response of a Christian to a government authority is submit. That's the default, okay? And the reality is that, at least for many of us, okay, this is not our natural inclination, okay? This certainly is not the natural bent of this age either with regard to governing authority or any authority for that matter. But Paul is pushing the Christian community to adopt a very different attitude toward our governing authorities, to adopt one of willing submission. I think the question we would ask Paul is why? Like why should we think that way or do that? After all, the authorities that Paul was talking about, like specifically because he's writing to the Romans, someone like Nero, for example, did not seem worthy of this at all. And, and then some of us might add, and neither do many of the authorities over us. They don't seem worthy of this. So we asked Paul, why should we do that? Like, what's the reason behind that call to submit? Is it, is it the worthiness of the person? 
That's not where Paul goes. Look at verse 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This is the Bible's view from cover to cover about governing authority. There is no authority except from God. In other words, God is behind all human authority. And as someone I read this week pointed out, <clears throat> this would have been news to Nero. <laughs> In fact, if you had told him that his position as emperor <laughs> and the power that he wielded over his people was actually a gift from God to him, a gift from the God of Israel to him, he would have laughed about this. But this is the Bible's take on governing authorities. There is none except from God. Now let's chase this further because this is really important. Okay? Paul is saying by this as well that all human authority is derivative or derived. Or you could say it's all given. It's all delegated by God. And one of the key things that this implies then is that no human authority is absolute or total. This is very important to understanding the various submission passages in the whole New Testament. Okay. Whether the passages are about mutual submission to one another or a wife's call to submit to her own husband or a church's call to submit to its elders, or the call here on Christians to submit to our governing authorities. Okay, this reminds us that no human authority has a right to our absolute obedience. Only God has that kind of claim on us. But at the same time, what we're learning here is that God himself has chosen to delegate a measure of his own authority to specific human beings to carry out his purposes in this present age. And as verse 1 says, there is no authority except what God has established. And then to connect that more directly, Paul then applies that to the existing Roman government. That's what happens in the next Line. That's what he means. He says, and those authorities that exist, like right now, have been instituted by God. Do you think that <clears throat> about our current authorities? That those that exist right now have also been instituted by God. This is then the theological basis for the call to Christians to submit. It's not grounded in the worthiness of the human authority, but in the sovereignty of God. Okay, so next, Paul goes on to make it clear then what resistance to government will lead to. Verse 2, what it entails. He says, therefore, whoever resists the existing authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist <clears throat> will incur judgment. That's pretty straightforward, Right? And I know many of us will want to ask, but what about this situation? Or what about that scenario? And there's time for all of that. Okay? There is a time for all those kinds of questions. But notice again, Paul is not concerned with the exceptions in this text. He is trying to help us grasp 
a few foundational truths about human authority. <clears throat> Every governing authority has been delegated that authority by God himself. Therefore, whoever resists it might as well be resisting God. It's like he's saying disobeying the governing authorities then is viewed as disobeying God since God himself stands behind the authority. He is the one who instituted it and gave them the power that they wield. And Paul clearly warns about the consequences. He says, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, what do you think that means? Those who resist will incur judgment. This could be a reference to like future judgment from God, uh, like at the, at the judgment, or, or Paul might simply be talking about how resisting government now will lead to judgment now at the hands of the government. Either way, Paul is going to go to that second point in the next verses. So look at verse 3. We'll read verses 3 to 5. It says, for, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. All right, so resisting government, governing authority, will lead to judgment here and now. Why? It's because God has delegated power to governing authorities to reward good and to punish evil. Rulers are not a terror to the good, Paul says, but to the bad. And it's interesting how down to earth he is with this. He just asks a simple question. Do you want to be able to live a life where you're not afraid of the government? Then do what's good. They'll leave you alone. They'll maybe even approve you. Maybe even praise you. But if you do what's wrong, that's the time you need to be afraid because government doesn't bear the sword in vain. See, government has been delegated a measure of authority from God to bring God's judgment down on evildoers in this present age. Now remember, I want to connect this to last week. Sometimes people think this text <coughs> has like nothing to do with anything else in Romans. And I think one thing you have to remember is Paul's writing to the Romans. Okay? This was on their mind all the time. Like They live in the center of the Roman Empire. But also you can see connections if you look back to what we saw last week in Romans 12. Remember how we saw last week that we are not to avenge ourselves. Okay? Instead, we are to leave that to the wrath of God. Vengeance is his, he will repay. Remember that? Now, much of, the, of that wrath will fall in the future at the judgment. There's, a, there's coming a day when all wrongs will be made right, including the wrongs of unjust governments. But if you look at how similar the wording is between the end of Romans 12 and this text in Romans 13, it's also clear that this is a key function of human government. God brings down his wrath on evildoers in this age through the human governing authorities that he puts into place. And that's especially clear when you look at verse 4, where he says, he, the governor, the governing authority, is the servant of God. He is an avenger carrying out God's wrath on the evildoer, like now in this age. So what Paul's hammering home is the relationship between governing authorities and God. 
God delegates his authority to execute justice to governing authorities. So those authorities are, in that sense, God's servants, carrying out his will in the present age. And so he concludes in verse 5 with the same thing he said in verse 1. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Why? Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Doing what's right, being submissive, will lead to avoiding judgment. But notice how Paul adds, this, also do this for the sake of your conscience in verse 5. And we'll learn more about the conscience in Romans 14. Paul talks a lot about the conscience there. But it's, it's not hard to grasp what he's saying. If you, start, if you start looking at governing authorities the way God does, you will want to submit wherever you can for the sake of your conscience. To do otherwise would run the risk of violating your conscience, which is a gift from God. Now, of course, by this point, we all really want to ask questions like, but what about a government that is a terror to good instead of to bad? Or what about those terrible times when the government is bringing down the sword against faithful Christians instead of against rebellious criminals? What about that? And again, those are very legitimate questions, and the Bible has answers for those, and we'll, we'll touch on some of that in a few minutes. But I want, what I want you to hear right now is what Paul says right here. Okay? Let his emphasis settle in on you. Now, let's take a look at the second section of the text, okay, where Paul applies that view to like one or two specific issues. And you say, they might not be, they're probably not even the ones that you want to hear about, but they're the ones that he wanted to talk about, okay? Verses six and seven. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So pay to all what's owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. <clears throat> What's the specific application? Two things. Christians should pay their taxes, and Christians should honor their authorities. That's not hard to see, not hard to understand. After all, God is the one behind government. God himself instituted human government to protect the innocent and to inflict his judgment on those who do evil. And a key aspect of how government is able to do that, to have the time and ability to do that, is what? Through taxation, which is to say through taking from us some, hopefully not too much, but some of our money so that they're able to fulfill God's call on them to protect and to punish. Now, in verse 7, you, you might have seen there's two words there, taxes and revenue. Okay, taxes would include things like tribute from other like conquered nations. This was really common in Rome. Uh, but also, more generally, taxes would include things like property taxes or poll taxes, as they were called, something like a flat tax on every person for the sake, you know, because you're alive, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and revenue would include things like sales tax, tolls, day-to-day -day kind of things like that. Okay? And as in many societies, taxes 
were contentious topics in the Roman Empire. Okay. Taxation became a very contentious issue during Nero's reign, especially in the years right after this letter. So think about this. Paul is calling on the Christian community in Rome to pay their taxes. Why? Well, for one thing, I think it's safe to say Paul believed that was the right thing to do. And so to do otherwise would be to violate conscience. But to add to that, Paul also thought that's the best, the best path toward peace. And remember from the previous text, his approach is live peaceably as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. But I think it might also be helpful to consider this from another angle. What does Paul want to avoid? <clears throat> Paul does not want the Christian community in Rome to be marked out as the people who don't pay their taxes. He doesn't want them to be known for that. Okay? And this is, I think, how he approaches many of the social issues in his day. He does not want the Christian community to be known for rebelling against government, for example. Okay, after all, what, what would that accomplish for churches and for the sake of the gospel to be known for that? I think for Paul, it's clear. If the church is going to be known for something, then let it be known for the things of Romans 12. It's love. It's humility. It's hospitality. It's hard work. It's peace. Not for refusing to pay taxes. But also notice that verse 7 doesn't talk only about paying taxes. Paul adds that we also ought to give respect and honor to our governing authorities. In other words, we could technically pay our taxes dutifully while at the same time maligning our authorities all the time while cursing them to others, while speaking of them in ways that are completely dishonorable and disrespectful, by talking with one another in the community about them in ways we would never talk to them. This is a possibility. And so Paul challenges us not simply to pay taxes, but to give honor and respect. And again, especially as you consider the character of a man like Nero, it's clear that the worthiness or the nobility of the person is not the key thing for Paul when it comes to this. What matters to Paul is that the authority is connected to God, has been delegated the authority, has been instituted by God. This is God's servant you're talking about. Christians grant honor and respect because of that. Okay, that's our, that's our text. It's, it's not a particularly long text. It's actually not very complicated. There's almost nothing in that text <clears throat> that is very difficult to follow. Uh, Paul, and remember, Paul wasn't trying to write a long treatise on Christians and government. He also wasn't trying to answer every question we might have. Instead, he's laying down the basics of a Christian view of governing authorities. His vision for how Christians can live well together in this age with respect to their governing authorities. Okay, that's what we've seen. Now, for a few minutes, I want to I take us to some other texts 
that help fill out the Bible's picture of governing authorities. What it says, this is not the only text that Paul writes or that you find in the New Testament. We won't look at any of these in detail, but just so you have a chance to hear some of them. Okay, Paul, for example, I think he has two other texts where he talks about governing authorities. Maybe, maybe there's more, but these two certainly stand out. One's in the book of Titus, where he says, in Titus 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, <clears throat> to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever's good. There's short, but that's, that's his, fits right in with Romans 13. The other text that Paul talks about government is about something we ought to do for government that's different than what we see in Romans 13. <clears throat> do you remember what that is? It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. What does Paul challenge the church to do for its governing authorities? I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, <clears throat> for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, <clears throat> and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So from, from Titus, Paul wants the Christian community to be known not for rebellion and bad works, but for submission and good works. And in Timothy, you get a, a picture of Paul's heart for governing authorities, one that you can see in his encounters with authority in the book of Acts. Like This was his heart for them. He prayed. He calls the church to pray for its governing authorities. We should ask God, to help them rule well in a way that would allow the gospel to flourish and us to live in peace. But, but as you think of that text in 1 Timothy, we should also pray that God will be so gracious that he will bring our governing authorities to Jesus. And if we ever had a chance to talk with them, we will want to tell them we pray for them and hopefully call them to follow Jesus as their true Lord. Since, after all, God wants all people to be saved. This is what he says in 1 Timothy. We, now, elsewhere, we, we saw in Peter, 1 Peter, we read the text. For, the text from 1 Peter is almost the same as the text in Romans. They were on the same page, and not surprisingly, Paul and Peter were on the same page on this because this is what Jesus already taught. Think of Jesus. He would be asked questions about taxation. This is one of the main ways they always they try to get him you know, tripped up so they could find something to hold against him. And so maybe you remember his famous answer about taxation. What is it? Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. <clears throat> but, it, but there's other stories too, like where Peter, Peter himself asks about this temple tax and they have this discussion. And uh, Jesus' conclusion is, you know, may, you probably don't have a, an absolute necessity to do that, but for the sake of peace, go ahead and pay it. And by the way, go catch a fish, and the next fish you find will have the money in its mouth. So that was pretty great. But it's not just there that we hear from Jesus about governing authorities. Perhaps you remember Pilate asking Jesus in shock, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? Remember what Jesus says to that? 
you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. This is the same view of authority that is found in Romans 13. But these aren't the only words about governing authority that are relevant either. As I've been noting, or at least hinting at, there are times when God's people ought to disobey governing authority because of their allegiance to a higher authority, to God. You see that in the Bible too. We read a little from Daniel earlier. Part, there was a couple reasons I want to do that. I wanted to see Daniel 2, think about that story with Nebuchadnezzar, but I also wanted us to start thinking about Daniel, the stories that maybe you're familiar with, because this is a repeated theme in Daniel. So, for example, uh, th- there's many situations in the book of Daniel where the governing authorities are compelling Daniel and his friends to do things that would dishonor God. And so in Daniel 1, there's a, a desire to pressure them into eating food that God had forbidden them to eat. <clears throat> in Daniel 3, there's a call for them to bow down to a statue of Nebuchadnezzar and to worship it. That's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel 6, there's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But what's behind that story? It's the prohibition of prayer. In all those cases, from food laws to prayer to worshiping God alone, the righteous in the stories remain respectful of their governing authorities while choosing to obey their higher authority instead of the human authority. And in every case, they did that at great risk to themselves. And they were doing the right thing. And this carries right through into the New Testament. Perhaps the most well-known story is when the apostles respond to the Jewish leaders who keep telling them, stop talking about Jesus. And this leads to some really great texts. One in Acts 4, one in Acts 5. Maybe you remember some of these. In Acts 4, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you can decide. But we cannot but speak of the things we've seen and heard. And then in the next chapter, we get the famous line, we must obey God rather than men. And of course, even connecting this back to Rome, the Christian confession itself that Jesus is Lord was basically illegal already in the Roman Empire. And within a few years of the letter to the Romans, Christians would be confessing their allegiance to Jesus as Lord at the cost of their lives in that same city. And they were not wrong for doing that. They were courageous and right for doing it. In fact, Peter and Paul, who we read their take on government, would both suffer and die at the hands of Nero himself in the very city for defying Nero because of their greater allegiance to their Lord Jesus. And none of those stories contradicts what Paul's saying in Romans 13 because even in Romans 13, it's clear all human authority is delegated. It's not absolute. Our primary allegiance is not to Caesar but to Jesus. So where those clearly conflict... There is no question about what to do. The Christian always gives his or her allegiance to the one true Lord of the world, to Jesus. But, like I've been saying, 
That's not really Paul's emphasis in Romans 13, is it? He doesn't even go there. He chose not to focus on the exceptions, but rather on what he wanted Christians to be known for in Rome and around the Roman world. Christians are not to be marked out as troublemakers, as rebels, or as revolutionaries. Rather, Christians should be marked out day by day by a desire for peace and a willingness to submit to governing authorities as much as we can, a heart for those governing authorities to come to Jesus and for our prayers for them, that God would grant them wisdom to rule so the gospel can grow. Now, there is a lot more that could be said about that. So many good questions we could ask, and, and, I, and I'm going to uh, share a little bit of maybe some of the things related to some questions you might have, but, but we can talk more about these things as well together this week. Perhaps there's been things on your mind. This is a, a very large topic, but as, been, as I've been reflecting on how to close today, let me highlight a few things. Our allegiance as Christians is first and foremost to God. Because of that, because of that, we are by default supposed to submit to our governing authorities because God put them there. That doesn't mean our obedience to governing authorities will be absolute. It won't be. After all, their authority is not absolute. And where there's clear conflict between the call of God and the call of a human authority, we always want to side with God while still being as peaceable as we can be. But I would say this. Whenever we think we need to disobey, like a human authority, we better be absolutely convinced we have the grounds for it in Scripture. There are things for it to do that, but you better be convinced you've got the grounds for it in Scripture. Because related to this, Christians should be known by their submission, not by their lack of it. And all human government is flawed deeply. Our call is not to submit based on the worthiness of the individual or the group or the party or whatever the structure is of the government. That is the aim of this text here in Romans 13. This applies especially to paying taxes and to honoring and respecting authority. So just to think about that, Christians should not be known, for example by their crude jokes about their governing authorities or by their ridicule and mockery of their authorities. We should not be marked out by that. If, perhaps if, if Christians would spend whatever energy coming up with good cutting jokes you know, about governing authority, spend that energy on praying for them, you know, for God to give them wisdom, for God maybe even to save them, you know, maybe God would be pleased to answer that. But also, I want to say in, this, in the church, Christians within a church and Christian churches may disagree about the specific applications we should make as individuals in regard to government. As I see it, this becomes more and more likely that there's going to be these situations. The more and more that any government runs from God, and the more and more that any government seeks to expand its role in more and more areas of life. It's going to bring up more tension, more questions, right? And so this is what's happening 
in, in our own country. And the more that these things happen, the more opportunities for differences arise. And to add that uh, to that, given that we live today in this country in a very different form of government, where we actually choose our leaders, and where there is a constitution, which at least in theory, is over even the governing authorities themselves. Not every Christian or every church is gonna make the exact same applications when it comes to governing authorities, when let's say those authorities don't follow the constitution or the like. I'm not trying to teach us about political philosophy. I'm just trying to say, look, I've had lots of conversations with people in, in here over the last two years. It's been really great. It's been profitable, good. But there's lots of disagreements about these kinds of things and there's reasons for a lot of those disagreements and a church can handle that. Churches can disagree about some of these specific applications. My challenge to each of us is not to spend the next year immersed in political philosophy. Rather, it is first to examine our own hearts in light of the text today, the text we've touched on, and to see where we might be more shaped by our age than by the word. We should ask God to give us more and more of his mind. My challenge is also to recognize Christians could come to different practical conclusions. This, I'm not saying that every single response is necessarily approved by God. Like that just, hey, whatever anybody wants to do with government is right. That's not what I'm saying. But it's just to acknowledge that what I may see may not be what another brother sees. And it's not necessarily a sign I'm right and they're wrong or vice versa. There's a lot of things that play into this. But instead of assuming we know why people do different things, talking with each other can be helpful. In addition, giving the benefit of the doubt to a person that we think is doing something different than we would, that could be good. But more than anything, remember the church is not bound together by political party or philosophy, but rather by the blood of Jesus and by our mutual commitment to Jesus as Lord, as the one true Lord of the world. And lastly, though, this is where I really want to end. <clears throat> This is why we read Daniel 2. Remember that one day there will come a kingdom in all of its fullness that will crush all other kingdoms. As we read in Daniel 2 earlier, one day the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And on that day, it will break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it alone will stand forever. One day there'll be a perfect king on his throne who will be worthy of your respect because of who he is and what he's like. This should remind us that as, as important as we often think politics are, this is all stuff of this age. One day, it will all pass away. Don't put your hope here. In politics, elections, any human authority, it will not deliver. Instead, when we see the failures of every political system, of every political party, of every governing authority, let it stir us instead to long for the return of the king and to pray with John what he prayed at the very end of the Bible. Even so, 
Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this church and just how you have helped us over these last two years where we have actually had to wrestle with so many things related to our governing authorities. And I thank you for the unity that you have preserved here and just the desire to uh, walk together in obedience to you and love for one another. And Lord, we pray today that the heart of this text will, will get a hold of our hearts, Lord, that we will be a people that respects, honors, submits to our governing authorities as much as we can, that we will be a people that pursues peace, that we will be known for our prayers for our governing authorities. And Lord, I pray that we will also be known for our absolute allegiance to Jesus as Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.